This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. You can't go and sit down in a restaurant during COVID-19, but you can go to space. More on that in about 15 minutes. If you are being asked to go back to work, that's a whole other story. What exactly can you ask for from your employer? What expectations should be there? What sorts of things do you have to know about people coming through your business? In order to deal with all of these topics, we welcome Canada's leading employment and labor relations lawyer, Howard Levitt, to London Live. Howard, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? And thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. We really appreciate it. Uh, Why don't we get into return to work first? People who are returning to work or people who are at work and kind of that whole, how do I feel safe now in my place of employment? What sorts of things do employees need to know that they can talk to their employers about to make them feel safe? Anything and everything, really. An employer has to accommodate safety. An employer does not have to accommodate anxiety. And with the government telling you for weeks, stay home, stay home, best not to come to work. If you're not feel comfortable, don't leave your house. If you don't feel comfortable, go to, go, go to work. That is simply nonsense, legally. And those sort of aspirational statements are running afoul of employment law obligations. If the employer creates a safe working environment, the employee has no choice. They have to return. They can't say, you know, I'd rather be off on SERP or I feel anxious or I, I'm 60 years old and I'm worried. They don't have that option. So if they have actual safety objective concerns, they can raise them with the employer and should raise them with the employer. And the employer should have a back-to-work regimen, which we work on with a lot of our clients. In fact, our own law firm did it. We put through a full work back-to-work regimen to make sure we've analyzed every single aspect of the workplace to determine that every and make sure that everything's safe, whether it's sanitization every time anybody uses a photocopier, whether it's um, how people walk down halls when they might be near someone else, whether it's where sanitation stations are listed, social distancing, personal protective equipment, the gamut. We have about 80 different things that we, even how you use the elevator in the building, in the commercial building that we're in. But think about why you think it might be safe or unsafe and ask the employer, have that dialogue with the employer and see if they can satisfy your apprehensions. That's a good place to begin because as much as we think, okay, everything's just set out and they know a whole lot more than we do and so we have to place complete faith in our employers, Uh, this is kind of a moving situation. It's always been kind of fluid. It it sounds like it's a pretty good idea to say, hey, what what about the way that we are dealing with our elevator travel in this place? Absolutely. Uh, And everything else as well. People have are writing to me all the time, clients or potential clients saying, I don't think it's safe because when I was there two months ago, people were too close proximity. Well, maybe they were two months ago. That doesn't mean they are now. Maybe they're in shift work now. Maybe you've put in cubicles now. Maybe you've created social distancing in terms of where your chairs are. In our boardroom, for example, we have four chairs and we situate them where they're going to be, where people are allowed to sit to make, just by way of a little example, 
because the way we operated two or three months ago is not the way companies can legally operate today. So your employer might have thought about all these things, and you should ask them. And if they haven't thought about it, you have, and then you have a real opportunity potentially to say, no, I'm not going to come back until you do these things. But, and the employer may say, well, you know what? I don't have to do these things. It's safe without doing these things. And then there's a judge. There's a total absolute arbiter of that decision. It's called the Ministry of Labor, Occupational Health and Safety Inspector. Either side, after the employer or employee have discussed it, have the right to call in a, an inspector. The employee does not have to work until the inspector comes in. The inspector comes in. Right now, there's a lot of extra ones been retained, and they're coming in pretty quickly. And they say either it's unsafe, don't work, and that's not very often, or it's safe, you have to work, and if you don't work, you've lost your job, or it's not safe right now, but I require you to make these three changes. And once you make those three changes, it is then safe. And if the employee doesn't come in then, they've abandoned their position, and they won't get served either. Hmm. We are talking with employment and labor relations lawyer Howard Levitt about returning to work. So you said at the beginning, Howard, it's important for employers to deal with the safety issues, but they cannot necessarily deal with anxiety issues that employees may have. When it comes to PPE, personal protective equipment, have there been any stringent guidelines laid out as to who is responsible for either the purchase or ensuring that this is being used? It's a good question because there have not been. In my office, we I brought in a large number of masks. And, of course, we paid for sterilization, et cetera. That's up to the employer. But in terms of equipment like masks, it's not been determined. What we've said here is that anyone wishes to, they can use their own mask. We have masks that we supply. If anyone wants it, no one has asked for one yet. They've all had their own or not used them at all. So, no, there's no, there's no rule. But I suggest it's prudent for the employer to do it because the employee may not know, even know where to access a mask. Sure. And if it's a requirement of the workplace, look, if it's a requirement of the workplace, then the employer is obliged to provide it. If it's not a requirement of the workplace, if it's a matter of personal preference, then, of course, it's not up to the employer to provide it. But I think it's a good practice to offer it anyway. When we're talking about safety, sometimes it can even extend beyond individuals in a workplace. We received an email yesterday that talked about someone who was working in a business deciding it was in the best interest of someone who would have been a customer not to come in because they had a child with them, thinking, no, 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 that's, that's going to, that it puts the child at risk, the child can't come in, you can't come in. How much control over the safety of people who visit the business might come up through all of this? Well, I can understand the business is apprehensive about um, someone coming in who has COVID and other people being infected or people being inf- or people who, who are already there infecting others and then all of a sudden having a massive lawsuit by a mother of a child who gets sick. Oh, realistically, there's no one more safe from COVID than children. There's The instant rate is about 0.0005%. But in any event, they may be carriers, but they don't get sick from it generally. But yes, an employer has an obligation to make sure, in terms of protecting their own employees, that no one is allowed in who might have COVID symptoms. And so if you, if you deemed that a concern, can you basically just deny access to somebody who might want to come into your business? Not only can you, you must. Look at the case in Walmart in the U.S. where... Um, 
Walmart was told by some employees, look, you're letting people in with COVID. So I hear coughing and you're not keeping these people out. And Walmart did nothing. And then somebody contracted COVID and he died. And the relatives now suing, relatives of the estate is suing Walmart for millions of dollars. And we could see those cases as well as WSIB cases here. If the workplace is rendered unsafe by letting people into the workplace, whether they be employees or members of the public with COVID symptoms, that's part of the back to work protocol being rigorous. Now it's subject to abuse because what some employees are doing. So I don't want to come back to work. I like to serve. So, and the employer says, you have to come back. Oh, you know what? I'm, I'm coughing. I'm wheezing. And, and it's with the board saying you can't ask for medical notes. It's the easiest way to, to game the system right now. Claim you've got COVID symptoms when you don't. So it's an issue. And a lot of these issues don't have nice answers that we can all, as the law would do, look up some precedent and figure out what used to happen and, uh, and see how that applies now, do they? Well, you know, I don't agree with that because, frankly, um, I'm able to answer basically any question you might have on COVID, and I do it based on extrapolating from general employment law principles. So it hasn't really changed. The application has changed. The principles, the law has not changed. And let me well, tell you good. the biggest, yeah, let me tell you the biggest area of law that's not changed. I'm getting all of these questions um, from clients, both sides, and they presume in the question that it's okay to be laid off. The question's about recall or what happens if I'm laid off for a certain period of time. And forget the more fundamental question, which is, can I be laid off in the first place with impunity? <laughs> and let me take you back four months. Imagine four months ago before COVID, your employer said to you or to any employee who called into the show, you know what, my employee just my employer just told me they're not gonna be paying me for the next three weeks or the next three months. Or they're cutting my salary, or they're telling me I have to go on a three day work week, you'd say in a heartbeat. Sue them. They can't do that. And you would be right to say that. Or let's assume you're paid two thousand dollars a month rent on your apartment and you decide, you know what, I don't want to pay two thousand dollars a month. I'm gonna start paying fourteen hundred dollars a month. You know you would be sued. Yeah. And it's still contract law. It's exactly the same thing. An employer, in almost every instance, does not have the right to lay employees off. The, if you're not in a union, and if the government has not ordered that business to close, in which case you have an impossibility defense. But simple, hard economic times is never a legal defense to a layoff or reduction in salary. But people are just taking it. Interesting. Well, Howard, we really appreciate the time. Before we go, I uh, just want to go back to, to that email to see whether, you know, because we uh, we just had a follow-up to it asking, can you outright deny a child and their parent coming into a business? Does a, does a business owner have that right? Well, a business owner can exclude anyone. As I Look, I'm an employment lawyer. I'm not a, a commercial lawyer, but I don't see any reason why any business can exclude whoever they want, as long as it's, as long as it's not based on race, grade, color. Um, well, I guess you could argue in this case would be based on age. So no, you can't if there's no other reason than their age. So you're right; it'd be a human rights code violation. Okay, I think we've got our services. answer, and there you go. We've got lots of lots of great answers about everything else, Howard. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for the time, and keep safe. Well, well thanks for having me. You too. Bye bye. That's Howard Levitt, employment and labor relations lawyer. We haven't quite seen the space flight that we're waiting for, period. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to check in with a good friend of London Live today, and then hopefully after this blasts off, we'll check in on Monday. Joining us right now is Max King from the University of Toronto. Max, how are things? 
Things are going great for me. How about you, Mike? Not too bad. We've had reports of an asteroid this week that missed us. Uh, April 29th, we had another asteroid that missed us. That's good. But instead of something being out there and maybe trying to get in here, now we're going to talk about something that is trying to blast off. It tried yesterday, didn't happen, but this is a very significant blast off. Why is this so significant? Why are we paying attention? Yeah, it's a great question, Mike. So there are rocket launches every week off the Earth. There's things going into space constantly, not necessarily during COVID era. But this one is worth, I think, everyone tuning into. This is the launch of the next generation of humans in space. The next generation of humans in space. Okay. And what makes it different than, say, something that NASA has been doing for years? So this, uh, what the launch is, is this is SpaceX's commercial crew launch. So this is the first launch of humans into space from a commercial company, so not a government entity, not uh, the United States or the uh, uh, Russian government sending people into space. So this is the culmination of years and years of effort, the idea of can we... Uh, reduce the barrier to entry to getting things into space? Can we make space more acceptable and cheaper to get humans up there? And that's what uh, SpaceX is demonstrating the ability to do, hopefully on Saturday at 322. They tried yesterday. Weather kind of interrupted that flight. And you go back to the beginning of SpaceX. They just wanted to send a rocket up and get it back down. Now all of a sudden we're at the stage where humans are involved and do we know who these humans are or what they're going to be doing? Yeah, so the uh, commercial crew, the astronauts, are Bob and Doug, Doug Hurley and Bob Benkin. hope I pronounced his name correctly. And so they will be joining uh, the crew that's already aboard the International Space Station. Uh, there's been crew on board the International Space Station ever since it first went up in 2000. So we've had humans in space continuously for 20 years, and now for the first time a commercial company is going to be bringing them, bringing astronauts up there. And one really exciting thing about this rocket is that if you think back to the space shuttle days, which ended in 2011, that was the last flight of the space shuttle, and since then, since 2011, there hasn't been a launch of a human being out of North America, out of America specifically. And so, that's a huge, uh, huge accomplishment right now. The first thing, the first group that's returning humans to space from North America in 10 years. So, Well, we'll see if they can get it off the ground tomorrow. And can we check back on Monday or off the ground on Saturday? Can we check back on Monday? Absolutely. Yeah, hopefully all things go well. Like, uh, like any uh, flight plan for an airliner you're taking, they have to check the weather, not only where they're launching from, but everywhere they're going to fly over, over the course of their journey, in case they need to make an abort or make sure they're avoiding any storms. So the weather could be clear in cloud or clear skies in Florida, but it might be cloudy somewhere else in the world. So uh, hopefully, fingers crossed for Saturday, and uh, we'll check in on Monday. Sounds great. Max, thanks for this, and thanks for describing everything. Keep safe. You as well. Thanks, Mike. That's Max King from the University of Toronto.
And so we will check back on Monday. Tom Cruise, not on the flight. There's all kinds of rumors he's going to be he's going to be filming a movie in space and he wants to do his own stunt. Yeah, it's one thing to do Mission Impossible stunts. It's another thing to really try to be an astronaut. Pretty sure, anyway. Tomorrow is May 29th. And May 29th is Championship Day in the City of London, even though I'm not sure we call it that. You know, when you have, like, Chocolate Milk Day or you have Cook Up Some Bacon Day, this is Championship Day. Both Memorial Cups, won by the London Knights, were won on May 29th. One in 2016 in Red Deer, Alberta, and one in 2005 right here in London, Ontario. The first ever OHL championship was won by the Knights that year, and it was won by a team that we now call the Team of the Century. And if you think back to 2005, it was a a wild Memorial Cup because Sidney Crosby was about to be drafted by the Pittsburgh Penguins. He was just an undrafted guy, but was an absolute phenom, and his Ramuski Oceanic were outstanding. The Knights began that year 29-0-2. So an unbeaten streak of 31 games. The Ramoski Oceanic ended that year 28-0-2. So that's how good they were. And a lot of it was Sidney Crosby. Through four games in the Memorial Cup, he had 11 points. Four games. And then came the Memorial Cup final. And Sidney Crosby and the Ramoski Oceanic were shut out by the London Knights. And two of the three people whose job it was to make sure Sidney Crosby didn't get many chances, certainly didn't get any goals, were Brandon Prust and Dylan Hunter. And they join us now on London Live. Guys, congratulations. It's been 15 years, but you still deserve it. That was big. Thanks, Tommy. Yeah, thanks a lot, Subject. I didn't even know. Dylan, let's kind of let's start with you. What do you remember first about seeing Sidney Crosby in person and playing against him? Oh, I mean, it was the whole year. It was, uh, you know, you knew who he was, obviously, uh, you know, generational talent. Uh, I mean, as, as young as we were, we were fans ourselves. Uh, you know how good he was just watching him that first game we played. So, you know, he was bigger than I thought he was going to be, for sure, for being how young he was. But, uh, again, just outstanding skill that, uh, you know, that you can see it on TV, but once you're out there against him, it was, uh, it was pretty evident. And didn't it come almost right off the first face-off in that very first game you played against him? Wasn't he on the ice? Yeah, yeah, he was. I, we, we had a big game plan drawn up. Me and Prusty and Keller and Civi and Girardi, we, you know, we're like, we got this. Uh, you know, we know what we're going to do. I ended up losing the first draw, of course, and quick D-to-D upstretch pass, and uh, he kicks it out wide to Puglia to go off the bar. And we were look, looking at each other, and we're like, all right, we might have to back it up a few steps. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon, when you look at the job that was there for you and Dylan and Trevor Kell to stop a guy like Sidney Crosby, who had just been piling up points, because you look back, you guys had almost your entire team go on and play some form of professional hockey. Their team really didn't have the same numbers, so everybody gives a lot of that credit, and probably rightly so, to Sidney Crosby. When you're asked to kind of shut a guy like that down, how do you go about preparing yourself to do it? Well, that was the big thing. Um, we knew that they had basically just that line we had to shut down, and they oh, and they had the two defensemen, their two top D men that always went out on the ice. So it was basically a five man unit 
that we knew that's all we had to shut down and we could, and we could win. And, um, you know, going in, we kind of knew that, or we knew that, but after the first period, we definitely had to regroup and kind of come together and say, okay, we're going to just, <laughs> let's just sit back a little further and just make sure we really shut them down. <laughs> we didn't go on too many rushes or, or try and create too much offense. We were strictly just, let's just shut these guys down and we know we, we know we'll win. Well, you were down 3-1 at that point in that first game. You come back, you win in overtime. Mark Mathot, the offensive hero in the game, two goals and an assist. Everybody's got to be an offensive hero at some point, right, Dylan? <laughs> That's right. He was the unlikely uh, unlikely candidate. But, uh, I mean, I think we could, after that, we were giving him, giving him some grief. We could shoot, give him about 100 pucks from that side where he scored that OT winner and I'd, I'd maybe hit the net on 50 of them. But, uh <laughs> Yeah, I mean, those are the, the hockey gods everyone talks about, and it worked out. Brandon, we had Al who called in and said, see if Brandon remembers Sidney Crosby heading to the net and you lifting his stick and taking away a scoring chance. I don't I don't know how many chances there were for everybody in that tournament. Do you remember that at all? Yeah, I remember, um, I remember taking, and I think he took a penalty after, because I remember I took the puck from him once and I started going the other way, and he kind of can open me and he ended up taking a penalty and uh so that's one play i, I kind of uh i kind of remember um but uh, yeah like you said it's 15 years ago so it's hard to remember every play but yeah i do i do remember crunching him behind the net too i'll always remember that uh he tried to do a little turn back and uh while well, he's doing his little cycle down along the boards and i ended up crunching him into the boards so yeah you remember little things like that for sure Brandon Price, Dylan Hunter, part of the trio along with Danny Savret and Dan Girardi, whose task it was to shut down the offense of the Ramuski Oceanic, and you guys did that and then some in a 4 nothing win in the Memorial Cup final. Dylan, going back to that game, was there ever a point in the game where you let yourself say, you know what, this is working, or was it just shift after shift after shift until it was done? I I think that was our mentality was he was so good. He just needed an inch. So it was just every shift. You didn't pat yourself on the back. It was just tick one shift off, tick another shift off. Uh, you know, just keep trying to frustrate him. You know, I know by the third period, he was pretty frustrated and started, uh, you know, roughing it up and trying to get him out of his game. I think that was the first time we we're on the bench. We're like, okay, it's working. Like we're, we're, we're getting him off his game. He's more worried about yelling at Prusty than, than trying to make some plays. Brandon, when you've got a guy who you can get under the skin of like that, and I think it's tough to do that with a guy like Sidney Cross because you can be under his skin one minute and he can be scoring a goal the next minute, but but do you kind of sense that you know what you're doing is working, that little crunch along the boards or whatever it is that he's doing to get back at you that isn't kind of setting up his teammates? Yeah, I, we, we could feel we were doing a good job, but we never really got ahead of ourselves. We never got too confident. We always knew, you know, we just – we stayed humble about it. We we knew what we were doing was working, but we never wanted to take our foot off the gas and and let up at all. So I think that was a real big thing for us. It's just you know we never gloated. We were sitting on the bench. We all I remember just staying focused and just kept staying positive with each other. Like let's keep doing this. Let's keep doing this. And and uh, you know we didn't gloat until after the game. 
<laughs> Dylan, what's it like to think back now? 15 years have gone by. You're a dad. You've won a Memorial Cup now as a coach. What is it like to think back about what you accomplished in 2005? Uh, you know what? It, it's, it's, it's a great memory to have uh, the whole year itself. Uh, like, you know, like, you know, a lot of us were together for a lot of years. Uh, you know, had a heartbreaking game seven the year before. So coming into that season, I think we just had that mentality that, you know, we're going to do it for each other. We're going to do it the right way. And just that whole whole thing was, it's just really hard to, to put into words. It's something that we all still, you know, hang out. We talk, it comes up once in a while. And it was a huge moment. I mean, it's it's one of those things that you'll remember for the rest of your life. And, you know, when now you have kids and you can see the happiness with my guys that I coach. And it's uh, something that you never really forget the bond you as a group and uh like i said we you know we still hang out all the time to talk to each other and i think it's something special well if anybody can find the video and i'll tweet it out if i can find it but if anybody can find the video of the countdown as the game ends brandon i know we've talked about this before but here's how into the game everybody was the countdown is going on and you get the puck inside the blue line and and you go the other way you know, looking for for an empty netter just to seal it, seal a four nothing win. I mean, was that just kind of how it was going? Uh, yeah, I still get uh, the boys chirp me for that one for uh, <laughs> a long time. I didn't. I to me, it was still twenty seconds left on the clock. Like I did not know I was playing. I was playing until I heard that buzzer. So um, yeah, I don't even really. I was I was black. I remember I got to the blue line and I just remember seeing like. All the fans, everybody's cheering, like sirens, everything's going off, the horns going off. I was like, oh, okay, game's over. And then last one into the pile, because everybody even from the bench beat me down to the pile. That must <laughs> so, just show how loud that was in there then. Yeah, yeah, I didn't even really, yeah, I didn't know what, uh, I think the buzzer might have went five seconds before I was still skating. So, uh, yeah, it was pretty funny. I got the boys chirp me for that one. Still, ch- They still chirp me about that one. <laughs> Hockey players never forget, do they, Dylan? No, they don't. Those are the best ones. Those are the best stories. Yeah. I just love that it was still clear as day on that video. I thought Prussy was going to get his cookie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right I, had my, I had my fight. I had my fight. I needed to get my goal. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking with Brandon Preston, Dylan Hunter, about the 2005 Memorial Cup Championship, the anniversary of both nights' Memorial Cup Championships end up being tomorrow. Guys, everybody always talks about, you know, just being around the team, that sure, the on-ice stuff can be really special. Uh, accomplishing what you did is really special. But but is there a moment that year that you remember in the room where, where something happened, like somebody just stood up uh, in, an, in the middle of an intermission and, and changed the course of a game or anything like that? Or were you guys pretty pretty quiet, pretty businesslike? Dylan, what do you remember? I mean, there's a few. It's, it's uh, you know, I, I, the one game against Kitchener where we came back to keep the streak alive. Uh, you know, we we had some big guys gone to World Juniors, and uh, you know, just being able to come back to that, the building was going crazy, and you know, those were one of those big moments. I think that it kind of solidified, like the you know, the, the not the top line, the you know, the, everybody else underneath that weren't at World Juniors. We're kind of like, you know, it's good enough that we can come back and just add these guys. We're going to be good and. You know, the, the stuff like that is what you remember uh, throughout the year. Um, obviously, the streak itself was was huge in that confidence and, and being able to not think that you're ever out of a game. That's it. And, Brandon, you guys never were out of a game. There was a game against Peterborough. I think you were down 5-2 after the second period. The end of the game was 7-5 nights. Anything could have happened. Yeah, yeah we knew that. Uh, and, and 
Mike Daly said that one game uh, against Kitchener, that was when you asked that last question, what was kind of a defining moment. Um, that was uh, That's the first thing that came to my mind, something like that. We were down 3 nothing to Kitchener, and we came back. So, um, we always knew there was a, we always knew there was a chance. We had a lot of firepower and, uh, when it came down to, uh, to really buckling down and, and, uh, battling, uh, we were always, we were always up for that. Brandon got another email that's come in from Rob and he says, ask Brandon Prust whether or not he's ever talked to Sidney Crosby about that final game when playing against him in the NHL. Did it ever come up? Uh, I never really... Never really had the chance. Like I had some conversations with him, like on the ice plan. Um, you know, some just, you know, what's up, and and some in a, in a scrum where I suckered somebody, and he's like, "Oh man, that's not cool." But uh, <laughs> um, I never really had a conversation with him about uh, about that game, though. Well, it's been great talking with both of you, Dylan. Before we go, the other championship is the one that you were on the bench for as a coach. The difference between being a player and, and being a coach and and still winning it all. How would you describe that? Uh, I mean, it's different for sure. As a coach, you're almost relieved. Uh, you know, you're just as stressed out. Uh, you have a game plan, but you're standing behind the bench, and you know you're hoping that it just works. Uh, as a player, you have more of that confidence where. You're like, I got this, or, you know, I got this chance or this shift. And uh, when you're celebrating, you're in the trenches with the guys and it's a lot more emotional. Um, with a coach, you're proud of the guys, but you're a little bit more separated from it. And like I said, more exhausted of lots of video and long days, and you're more just, okay, it's over and, and it worked. <laughs> well, you guys have brought this city so much excitement and so much of a sense of pride. Thank you so much for sharing some memories on this and keep safe and hopefully we get to see a whole lot of hockey back sooner rather than later. Thanks, Subsy. Yeah, thanks, Subsy. Take care, guys. That is Dylan Hunter and Brandon Prust of the 2005 London Knights and Dylan Hunter, of course, is still with the London Knights now in a coaching capacity, so has won Memorial Cups that can be celebrated tomorrow. Two anniversaries, a 15-year anniversary and a four-year anniversary. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.